Welcome back to Behind the Wealth. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm once again joined with Elias Randall. This is the first episode we're actually filming after the new year, so it's 2021. We put 2020 behind us, and you know it's kind of neat. We're starting to get some listener questions coming into the show, and we always want to address those. And the listener question we're going to talk about today is a pretty common theme that we're hearing. In fact, I took a call this morning about it. But Elias, why don't you share a little bit about the listener question that we got here recently, and let's talk about you know some solutions for this. I can do that. So listener question. I've been reading a lot about a market crash coming and recession looming, question mark. I'd like your perspective on this and wondering if we shouldn't move all of our money to some sort of cash derivative and wait for the crash to buy back in. I can't afford to not take advantage of the drop, in my opinion. So that's the question uh, from the listener. So Roger, what are your, I guess, so what are your thoughts on that and how do you how would you just answer that in general? So just summarize it a little easier to understand. The client basically wants to know if he can time the market, right? He, he's believing right. that he's going to be missing out by not going to cash now and trying to time some market dip. Um, and what I tell you is I don't think you can time the market. I think it's been proven over time that that's just not possible. Um, it's a normal reaction markets are at highs. I took a call this morning. Hey, should we become more conservative? And, and I said, well, we can if that's where you want to be long term. But you know, if you want to continue to have growth, it's going to be really hard to have growth in an environment where you've got 80% of your money in a fixed income type portfolio. Um, so what I actually did is I went back to his financial plan and said, hey, let, let's see if we stay the course, what our probability of success is, and of course we still had him in what we consider the optimal portfolio for our for our office, so we didn't make any changes. So for this listener that, that thinks they need to go to a cash derivative, well, number one, if you do that, you're going to an environment that basically has a zero rate of return, right? If you look at actual real return, so that's the, the yield minus inflation, most cash and bond, you know, safe type bonds right now have a negative real rate of return. So you're basically saying I'm willing to accept losing money in a safe investment. Um, we obviously don't know when markets are going to go down. And, and we're going to talk later about, you know, people that try to predict markets and why it doesn't work and, and all those different things. So for this client, I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, the doom and gloom story is always out there. It's what attracts people. If you think about it, the market goes up 90, let's just say the market goes up 90% of the time, right? And you predicted every year the market's going to go up. Well, you're batting 900. Like right. you're a first ballot, Hall of Famer, greatest of all time. No question. No question about yep. it. But the people that predict that the market's going to go down, they're right 10% of the time. And we look at them as they are the next coming, they know all. Well, if you predict that the market's going to go down every year, there's going to be a cataclysmic event. Eventually, you're right. going to be right. But how long did you have to wait to be right? Right. So for, for the listener who's thinking, okay, so you're saying we can't time the market and get in and out. Are there some things you recommend doing when markets are at all-time high? Or is there something to do? Or is staying the course the way to go about it? No, I think there are for sure things you can actually do right so one of the main things if if you've looked at the last you know 12 months 2020 
Um, depending upon what you hold, if you hold growth in your portfolio for sure, you're probably realizing some pretty nice gains. One of the biggest things that can impact a portfolio would just be going in and rebalancing it, right? Say, okay, well now we went from 60% stock to 70% stock in our portfolio. Let's sell off that 10% gain and put that back into bonds or whatever, whatever we're selling and buying back in the portfolio and bring it back into balance where we originally wanted our risk and our asset allocation. So rebalancing is a great way to do it. The other, the other thing you can do is you could, you could almost look for opportunities without getting out of the market, right? So, so if growth has done extremely well, you can look at things like value and they haven't done well. You could actually just be rotating some of the growth gains back to value without trying to time the market and get in and out. Right. And you don't consider, so you don't consider taking some gains from one part of your portfolio and investing in some other opportunities as timing. No, that that's not timing. That That's more just, you know, rotation of a portfolio. And over time, it makes sense. If you look at like a Callan chart, that's a chart that comes out every single year and lists the top performers of each year. Well, most of the time, it's not the same investment or same asset class at the top of that chart. Right. So Correct. we don't really know what's going to fall. But if you had one year where, you know, growth has done great, but value's done poorly, well, maybe you take some of the gains in growth and move them to value. So you're potentially, you know, harvesting gains, but you're not going to cash. Right. Because cash, you're just admitting defeat. So there's ways to, you know, make a portfolio safer without actually going to cash or getting out of the market. Right. So let's talk about some of the, I guess, the realities of maybe bear markets or corrections. And for today's show, we actually have prepped. We found two different people that I guess I consider them perma bears. They're people that are always predicting uh, a bearish market. And one of them, he predicts both, but all of his predictions are, um, I don't know, far-fetched is the right word, but like he predicted the Dow to be 40,000 in like 2000, in the year 2000. Um, so some of the, we found some statistics. So some of the realities of a bear market, I guess it's probably safe to say it's going to happen maybe 10 to 12 times in someone's lifetime. And then I know on average, a 15% correction happens like every three and a half years. Is that right? Yeah. So first we should just kind of level set what a bear market is. And that's some type of drawdown of 20%. That, that, that's the bear market. 15% is more of a correction. Um, I think the thing that's interesting for most listeners of this show, they're probably of a younger demographic, they really haven't seen this. I mean, the first bear market per se that they've seen if they started investing in 2010, the first bear mar market that they saw was with coronavirus. And so they got, they got to see this bear market, but ultimately they saw the quickest recovery ever in stock market history. So is that a real you know, litmus test of what a bear market can do to somebody. Cause a lot of times these draw out for eight, 12, 18 months before we start to see the recovery. Right. So it, the question, was it even painful for people? You know, honestly, if you, it, it started to fall in March. So, so if people are doing some of the things we talk about, which is not being connected to this every single day, having some type of a media filter, right? Which this year, year was extremely hard to do that. I mean, everybody was captivated by this. They've been captivated by an election, by coronavirus. Like, they're tuned into the news. Right. But if they did some of the stuff we talk about, like, you don't have to check your 401k every day. 
you check your quarterly statement. Well, if you open up your March statement, then you opened up March statement didn't look good, but then you open up your, you know, beginning of July statement. Margo's already back. Like, yeah, that wasn't so bad. I mean, if you didn't make a change now, people that made a change, it's probably still painful for. And then if you wrote it out, you're actually rewarded. Um, and it goes back to one of our core principles on how we get people to emotionally be able to write it out. Right. Cause yeah. telling somebody, Hey, just stick it out. You're in it for the long term. That's different than quantifying to somebody why they should stick it out. Right. Right. So that, and that brings us back to the listener question. And so he mentioned in that question that there he's been doing research. So what we did, we went out and we actually, we did some research and we found an article. Uh, this article is on think advisor. So that's a service that we use to get financial news. And there's a, a guy by the name of Harry Dent and he calls himself, he's the contrarian's contrarian. So he calls himself that. And he's actually recently had a correct prediction. So one of his predictions, he predicted a crash in early 2020. His reason for that crash was going to be a debt and financial asset bubble. Uh, COVID-19, in my opinion, had more to do with it. But I'll, I'm going to go through his other predictions. And I just want to get your thoughts and your reaction to one. He predicted one that was right. And then there's some here that were incorrect. So in 2000, uh, 2013, he predicted a market crash and it didn't happen. He did the same thing in 2017 and it didn't happen. Um, and Harry Dent, he actually started an ETF called the Dent Tactical Advantage Fund, um, but it was delisted because of underperformance and they were charging clients 1.65 on an ETF, which most ETFs are way cheaper than that. Um, and then in 2000, he had economic forecasts of the Dow going to 40,000 points, and then also the NASDAQ being between 13,000 and 20,000. So when someone's making these pretty bold predictions, um, like how do you, I, what do you think of that? And then like, how do you talk people through those? Well, I think the first thing to remember, they're predictions, right? That doesn't mean they're right. And more than likely, they're not going to be right. So let's just kind of talk of first about you know, predicting market crashes. Nobody really knows when these market crashes are going to come along. There's signs that we see in the market, right, that that we think could happen. But I think today, even more than ever, with the amount of information available, there's information overload and you just can't predict a crash. In fact, most market downturns happen more because of what we'll call quasi black swan events, meaning we didn't see it coming. Right. Right. I mean, there were very few in the financial crisis that saw that coming, right? I mean, if you think about it, we've been told for years the best investment you ever make is buying a home. Well, yeah. who would have thought the housing market would just implode? Now, there were a select few who had the foresight to see that there were problems in the credit market that were driving these prices and lending that shouldn't have been done. But very few people saw that. So I don't know if we call that quite a black swan event, but close to it. I mean, nobody saw it coming. COVID-19, nobody saw it coming, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, the first cases were in December in China and like, oh, you know, it's in China, it'll stay away from here. And then I think it was like early February, there's a case here. And I remember we're in the office and, you know, well, that's in California. There's one case there, Seattle. And then I traveled to New Orleans the end of, you know, February to see 
some clients and I, I didn't even know how bad it was, right? Like, yeah, you know, I jumped on the airplane and I, I remember sitting next to this guy. And I was trying to be safe. Like, you know, my wife's a little bit of a germaphobe pre-COVID. So I literally sat down on my seat. And I wiped my seat all down with Clorox wipes, you know, and I'm keeping everything clean. And the guy kind of looked at me like, you know, what, what are you are, doing? What is this guy doing? Yeah, here? no, for real. And I, I told the guy, I said, you know, this kills COVID. And he's like, can I borrow one? You know, and, but he wasn't sure, like, why is this guy just wiping everything down? Cause it wasn't mainstream. This is the end of February and I'm coming back from new Orleans. And then, you know, what happened a few weeks later, like new Orleans was one of the hot spots. Cause I was there the last week in a Mardi Gras. And I yeah. told my wife, I felt, felt pretty fortunate that I didn't get caught into it, but nobody saw COVID coming at the extent of what it, what it did. So, you know, predicting market crashes, most of the time they're wrong. If they predict enough they'll be right. I mean, if I predicted a market crash every year, it's not if I'll be right, it's when I'll be right. And then how much gain did I miss out on? We're going to talk about an article later. The second thing you have in here, it's a little bit about a tactical ETF and tactical ETFs and tactical investing strategies were all the rage 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, until every single year, they just massively underperformed because what a tactical tactical investment really is, is trying to time market cycles in some essence, right? They're trying to hedge the risk. And if you think about the creation of these coming out of 2008, 2009, 2010, well, what a great time to talk about that. It's, it's more of a sales pitch, right? Hey, let me tell you how we navigate the market. And, and a lot of companies were actually, you know, creating algorithmic strategies and doing back testing on it even though they maybe didn't even have that strategy in place. Well, this would have done X. And I remember being approached by, by product sponsors saying, Hey, look at our, look at our, look at what this would have done over the last 30 years. If you had this kind of rotation tactical strategy. And my first question was, well, did you actually do it? Or is this a back test? Because, you know, hindsight is the king of all. We can have all the hindsight in the world right. and, and everything just kind of works out. So, right. you know, the reason it's delisted, he had to delist his investment company for all intents and purposes because market timing can't be done. It's never been proven to be done. A select few maybe have done it, so I shouldn't say never. That's a strong word, but it's very, very, very improbable that somebody can actually call a market. Right. And do you have any, I don't know, I mean, it's, do you have any thoughts on his other predictions when he is making predictions of like, the Dow going to 40,000. And he said that in the year 2000, um, which the NASDAQ's trading around 13,000 right now, um, which he called for that back in 2000. Um, like, is there any, so if he said that 20 years ago, like, is there validity to that? Or um, well, he's going to be right eventually. I mean, I believe eventually the Dow's going to be worth 40. The NASDAQ's already in this range or close to it. Um, Eventually, you'll be right. It, it just goes back to if I predict enough things, I'll be right eventually. It's just when. And then how much did I miss out on in between? Right? If you sat out the market, I, I remember back in 2016, 17, 18, oh, got to have a correction. Well, if you got out of the market and just sat on the sideline, you've been waiting a long time. Right. You know, we, we have the discussion in our office and with individuals, prospects, clients, listeners, the easiest thing to do is actually get out of the market. The hardest thing to do is to get back in. I had a conversation this morning 
hey, maybe we should become more conservative. Okay, why? Well, I think the market's really high. I said, yep, we're basically at all-time highs. But it probably won't be an all-time high over the next 10 years. It probably will or prob won't. It probably, probably won't be. Will. A, yeah, yeah, I mean, I believe over the next 10 years, prices will probably go higher. And, and I told him, I said, well, if we get out, when are we getting back in? Right. Like, when are we going to, what's the buy signal to get back in? Because if the market goes up another 15%, all you're going to think about is what you missed out on. If it goes down 15%, you're probably not going to be too excited to get back in because you think it's going to go down more. So predictions are exactly that. They are predictions. They don't really tell us a whole lot other than what somebody's personal outlook is. Right. And so really correct predictions are just more of a, they happen just because you're doing it all the time more than they happen because you're right all the time. Um, so let's jump into. I mean, the funny thing is, if I was running a tactical ETF, I'd predict, predict the market downturn too. Well, right. Because I need people would. to buy into my strategy. I mean, if you, and we found this, Elias, as we've researched people and what they actually do, that sometimes there's an underlying motive of their product or their service that they're trying to get you oh. involved in because the narrative fits what they're doing. Absolutely. So our next perma bear, um, his name's David Hunter, and he he falls into that category, and that's personally for me that's the um you know the the bear market predictors but then they're also predicting spot prices on gold and silver i always get entertainment out of that because you know i see it, i can see it coming and i hope listeners and investors can see it coming but typically if you're talking about a market downturn and then on the same show you're talking about the price of gold and silver and iras i know what you're trying to sell um, the general public doesn't know. They 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 probably right. don't put those two things together. Correct. They're, you know they're going to cause a problem, a cause and effect. We have a problem. Yeah. And then hey, here's the solution to this problem. Right. So yeah, which gold and silver? That's that's the solution. Looks right? good today. Right. Um, okay. So we found another interview, and you know we're kind of just picking on two people, but there's a lot of information out there. This guy's name. His name's David Hunter. He's on a YouTube interview. Um, with a guy named Elijah Johnson. Elijah's an advisor for, um, it's called Miles Franklin. The sh so the show was actually the Miles Franklin market update. So the first thing I do, I go look, okay, who's Miles Franklin? Well, they sell gold and silver and IRAs. They're interviewing David Hunter. Go look, who's David Hunter? So I found his LinkedIn. Um, and this is from, this is directly from his LinkedIn. I'm an investment professional with 25 years of experience and 20 years of sell-side strategy and strong ex expertise in macroeconomic analysis and portfolio management. And then you read through it a little bit more. He has a contrarian philosophy, which has allowed him to forecast economic cycles and spot market trends well ahead of the consensus. So he's saying he's been able to do that for the last 25 years. And then in this actual YouTube production, his prediction is an 80% downturn in markets for 2021, which would take the S&P to like 800 points, I think. When did he make the prediction, though? So, well, I think it actually take it lower than that because he made this prediction. So he's made he's made several predictions, but this 
so this video was from the in December 2020. Okay. And this is his outlook for 2021. Um, he's saying sometime in the summer, 80% correction. Um, and then he's also, throughout the interview, he's talking about um, like gold going to 10,000 an ounce. And I guess the other thing that caught me about the interview, so, cause I read his LinkedIn profile. So he's been predicting market trends and cycles for a long time. And then at the beginning of the interview, he says, well, I believe this current bull market, it's a secular bull market going back to 1982. So at, when someone says that to you, this bull market's been going since 1982, like what's your response as a financial advisor? Like what does that mean to you? What does that mean to investors? Hasn't it been going longer? I mean, if, well, I, if I look at there's like one decade, like one 10 year period of time, and I know this because we were preparing for another show, that it's had like a negative return. It was like minus half a percent. I think it was the 30s, actually, from 1930 to 1940. I could be wrong on that. But we've been in a – the market's going to continually go up. I just – this guy, we, we've researched him. And truth be told, we're yet to find more than just one or two predictions that he's made. Like, I don't know how he's claiming, hey, I've been right all these times because – aren't we always in a perpetual bull market? Like if we look at market cycles, the, the market continues to chug higher. Yes, there's hiccups along the way, right? We're going to have corrections. We're going to have bear markets. But if you think about the essence of what the market is and the, the idea, you know, Warren Buffett always says, hey, I believe prices will be higher in 10 years than today, right? Well, if that's true, then we're going to be in a continual bull market, for as long as the foreseeable future is, because we believe prices are going higher. And, you know, you start to think about how do we do that? Well, we have monetary policy that helps to help those prices go higher as inflation starts to run hot. We change our monetary policy. We increase interest rates. So, yeah, we probably will continue to see prices go higher in the future. Yeah. So I'll be honest. Actually, when he said that, I started to think, OK, I'm missing something. I didn't know that. Because he's saying the secular bull market goes back to 1982. And I guess I've always just thought a bull market ends when a bear market happens. But the way he was defining it was it's a so secular just means a trend. So that's just a trend line. And then so between 82 and now we've had several corrections and bear markets. Um, so then my next thought was, well, if that's your logic, you could say we're in a 90 year Bull, bull market, which lends to what you you were just talking about. Um, so I guess I just thought that was I thought that was interesting. Um, so I guess maybe. So then I was thinking, okay, so he must have predicted some of those fifteen percent corrections or twenty percent bear markets along the way, especially since nineteen eighty two. Um, and I was shocked. So because I wanted to find, okay, I want to find these predictions and. Uh, was he right? And by how much was he right? I could find one article of his predictions and it was from 2014. And he predicted the start of a bear market in 2014. And I think, so we're still in this secular bull market he's been talking about. I think we're still waiting for that 2014 bear market. <laughs> so we thought, well, let's, let's run some hypotheticals and let's just see. So we did too. We went back to the exact date of the article that came out and where he's predicting the start of a bear market. And we went back to 1982 just to see how would you do investing in equities and into the stock market versus investing in gold and silver. 
So first hypothetical, it's August 20th, 2014. His article comes out. This is the start of a bear market. That day, if you invested $10,000 into the S&P 500, the value today would be $21,430. And that's a 12.7 annualized return. If you invested 10,000 into a gold shares ETF, it's GLD on August 20th, 2014, your value as of December 31st, 2020, would be $14,358. That's an annualized return of 5.84. Okay, so let's go back to 82 and just see the difference. So we did 10,000 again, 10,000 January 1st, 1982. The value of your portfolio into the S&P 500 today, uh, $762,185, 11.75 percent annual return and back in 82 ten thousand dollars would have bought you basically 26 ounces of gold so you go out buy 26 ounces of gold in 1982 those 26 ounces of gold um, as of recently would be worth fifty two thousand dollars so we're talking about seven hundred thousand dollar difference there um, is it is it safe to say that David's maybe he's just wrong or maybe he's just trying to sell gold and silver? Well, I mean, he probably believes he's right. Right. I mean, most people that form an opinion believe it's OK to have a different opinion. I think what you have to do is in the reason we do this show is to help people figure out where they should really be taking their financial advice from. And we point these things out because if you go to YouTube or you type in market correction, this article, this YouTube video is all over them. It's like the first yeah, thing that comes up. It's coming to the top of the yeah, page. Yeah, and it's, it's, so it's dangerous because if you follow this advice, you may have missed out on $700,000 in gains. And if you think about the, the essence of what we do for people is we help people craft well-written financial plans and quantify what they need to do to be successful while they're accumulating and when they retire, okay? Well, no part of our financial plan says we need to time the market and go to gold. I'm not saying gold is bad. I'm saying that it could be part of a very well diversified portfolio, but if you're just going to gold because you're scared, that's not a rational reason to do it. Right, because that's emotional, right? That you're making a decision based on emotion. Most of the success of investing for people is driven by their reaction to things, how they handle market corrections and what they do with their money in times of chaos. Um, it really has very little to do with the price of the market when you invest. In fact, um, another person we both follow is Josh Brown and the compound. That's his podcast. It's awesome. Great show. Well, I was just on there playing around the other day and he has this video and and it's, you should check it out. It's at the compound. It's it's the video of Bob. And Bob is the worst investor of all time because <laughs> Bob only buys at market peaks. And in just to kind of summarize it, Bob made buys in 1980, 87, 2000, 2007. And over time. So he's buying before the biggest corrections yep. in the last 40 years. You got it. He's putting time. in $2,000 and he keeps it all in cash, saves it all in cash until the market peak. And then he invests because he's the worst investor. But the one thing that he never does, he never sells. He never makes an emotional 
reaction to this. Okay, he so never hits the sell button. Never hits the sell button. He only, but he only hits the buy button when markets are up, like at, at all, a peak, yeah. at all time high. So there are like four or five buying opportunities, and from 1977 through 2019, he'd put in 110,000 all at market peaks. So I think the first two um, markets were down 30%. Then he was down 58 and 50. I mean, big crashes that most people, guess what they're doing? They're, they're hitting they're, the sell button. Yeah, they're scared. He ends up investing around $110,000. And because he did nothing, he ended up with $1.1 By doing nothing. I mean, you think about this. If if you called some. Just think of the emotional roller coaster it would take to say, well, I just put my money in the market and it got chopped in half and I'm not going to do anything. But if you did nothing, it was worth $1.1 So it just goes to show that the price of the market is not going to determine or dictate how well somebody does. It has more to do with the, the intestinal fortitude to stick through a, an asset allocation or a financial plan and not make emotional decisions. But what was actually cool about this video, because Bob was scared, he's a conservative investor, so he saved it in cash till things were good because he's investing when things are great. They went back and said, what if Bob actually just did that $2,000 a year and dollar cost averaged it like we talked to people about, like people are doing in their 401k. Just a systematic savings plan, always saving, always Auto buying. Yep, automatic, always buying, always systematic. Had he done that, it would have been $2.5 yeah, so that's what, almost one and a half, one point four million dollar difference. Right. Just but most that. people, if I said if you had to put one hundred ten thousand total in, it was worth a million one, they would be satisfied with that return. Like they would think that was a nice return. Right. So it just goes back to trying to time a market. It just there's not a reason for it unless you're a day trader, which people listen to this show. Hopefully they're not day traders because we don't talk about day trading. Well, you're not going to get any good advice on day trading <laughs> listening to our show. No, so. no, we're going to get zero. So, you know, and just all this prediction, this is what it is. They're financial predictions. In fact, in here, you, you think about it, you know, who is one of these articles they talked about that they don't use past performance or any past that, information that, to formulate their future Yeah, that, that was David Hunter on the YouTube interview. He said... Well, see, the problem with most financial analysis is they use past data to make to make forecasts or predictions. And he didn't directly say this, but he implied he uses some sort of futuristic data that I'm like, that doesn't exist. Well, if you, you have a crystal ball or how do you get this futuristic got, data? Got the Ouija or something? Out? I don't I don't know. The Ouija but, board data. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about it, every every prediction you know, for for somebody to say that I'm not using past information to make a prediction, it's false. Like that's a lie because you have to come up with some data set from past things that have happened to formulate an opinion. I would think so. I mean, if there was futuristic data, don't you think like things like gambling would be more? Well, easy? Maybe that's why he's been wrong since 2014. His futuristic, <laughs> non-existent. I don't know. Dad. And I'm not trying to beat the guy up. I'm just right. telling people that, right. you know, when people say, hey, the market's going down 80%, I mean, that's cataclysmic. That's a huge downturn in a market. Um, I just, it's not, it's not even rational for people to think about. Could it happen? Absolutely. Is yes. it likely? No. So right. Is a market correction or another bear market going to happen? Yes. The right. question is, 
when, and how are you going to be prepared or how are you going to react to it versus where your money is at this point in time? Yeah. And actually, so this is statistics that we looked up and we make financial plans with this in mind. Um, there's a correction, which is a 15% downturn on average every three and a half years. So you can, when you start investing, you can just know there's more, most likely on average every three and a half years, there will be a 15% correction. Well, and I think this is another key thing we have in the notes here. There's never not been a recovery. Yeah, there, there never had. Yeah, so if you think about right. that, I mean, if there's, that doesn't mean at some point there won't be a recovery. I mean, there's clearly economic things out there that could be headwinds for the economy long term, right? We racking up massive debt. We have high unemployment right now. You know, what's everything going to look like after COVID's over? Because the workspace may have changed. Like there's things that are going to be different, but the fact there's never not been a recovery is what people should be thinking about. So why would I be trying to time the market and get out and miss all of this growth? Like if I listen to all these pundits or people predicting, at some point they'll be right. I just don't know when. Yeah, so we've, we've done a good job touching on the realities of predictions, um, how to digest that information. So let's talk about some of the realities of missing out. Uh, so recently, Capital Group, and they run American Funds, they sent out a white paper that talked about missing days in the market. And they did roughly a 10-year period. So if you invest $1,000 on January 1st, 2010, and you never did anything as of December 31st, 2019, your account value would be $2,897. And what was interesting was then they said, okay, so what if you missed the 10 best trading days, 20 best, 30 best, and 40 best trading days? Which is exactly kind of going back to the email we got in the call I took this morning. Hey, should we get out of the market and put it in a cash derivative and wait for the market to pull back. This is the exact scenario of doing this, basically. Right. Because human nature is when someone decides to get back in the market, it's probably because now they're feeling like they're missing out massively. Right. If the market goes up 15%, they're going to be like, man, I got to get back in. I'm missing out. Right. And that, and that just lends to making decisions with emotions. So Capital Group broke this down. If you miss the 10 best days, instead of having 2,000, $897, you would have had 1,945. If you missed the 20 best days, you'd have 1,458. The 30 best days, $1,148. And then just missing the 40 best trading days, you'd have $923. So you actually lost $77 just by doing that. And had you done nothing, you'd have 2,897. You know, and here's what I'd be really interested to know. When did the best trading days come? Did they come after a good day or did they come after a bad day that could have caused someone to pull out of the market? Right? Like, correct. Because you don't know when the good days are. I, I think it's a testament to the strategy of setting up optimal asset allocations, the stuff we talk about that once you get out of a market, how you can get back in. And if you think through our actual process of how we get somebody to get in a portfolio and have the fortitude to stick it out for 10 years without 
making rash decisions to get in and out of the market, right? How do we do it? And it's really comes down to the goals-based planning that we do for people and having a well-written financial plan to quantify what your goals are today, what they are tomorrow, what we have to do to actually get there. Um, and, and the issue with financial planning and what it's been like the last 20 years, right? When, it, when financial planning first came out or when I was introduced to it back in 2003, I was in an insurance company, right? Because you get out of college and they tell you you're going to be a financial that's, advisor. That's where we all start. But you're really selling insurance to your buddies over a beer because, you know, that's what 23-year-old <laughs> kids do. Right. And, and oh, yeah, I use this software because it's going to help you make an insurance sale. And you realize that's not really what it is. And in, this financial planning has morphed over the years into – the days of creating a plan for someone, printing out a booklet and giving it to them and saying, hey, we did a financial plan and we feel really cozy about that because it hasn't left the drawer for seven years, but we did a plan. The days of that are over. And, and what I mean by that is the financial planning world and technology, which we're gonna talk about in another show, how it's really changed. Um, these plans are all dynamic now. They're changing daily weekly that doesn't mean major overhauls but we can have a dynamic financial plan or financial decision tree as we like to coin it to make decisions of when we should change our asset allocation when should we change portfolios because the reality is if you're a 55 year old today and now you're you did a plan 10 years ago well that asset allocation from 10 years ago may or may not be the correct one today Right. You might need more risk because maybe you didn't do a good job saving. Maybe you have to dial down your risk to help provide you this high level of probability that retirement's going to work for you. Yeah. So how. OK. So when you talk about probability, um, how so how do you define like a high probability that a financial plan is going to work for somebody? How do you actually do that? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, because. We talk about this a lot. If you're like, well, how do I get this probability? What it, what it really is, and if you think about planning, there's really two methods to calculate how long your money will last. There's a linear return that just says, hey, if I made 7% each year and I took out 4%, how long my money lasts? Well, forever, because you're taking out less than you're earning. But the reality is there's no investment out there that makes 7%. Every single year. Yeah, every so, single year. So we have right, to have a right. way to account for the variance, right? The years where you make 18 and then you lose 10. And those gains and losses are all predicated by the amount of equity or stock exposure that you have in a portfolio. So what you really need to do is have a Monte Carlo simulation, which is mainstream in almost all financial planning software. But in its pure essence, what Monte Carlo does is test the variance of the parameters you've given the computer. And it says, hey, well, based upon what you've told me, 80% of the time, you'd still have value left in your investment account at a determined age. So like for ours, we use 92 or 94, depending upon the person. So that's really what we're trying to do is say, hey, what's the most likely outcome? Because no different than market timing predictions. I mean, it's some level. The financial plan is a prediction, right? Because the data and subset changes every single day which once again lends itself to why we should have a very dynamic plan versus the feel-good plan I did seven years ago and sit in my kitchen cabinet and I feel really good. I know one of the things you do for my customers is you're updating all the financial plans every time before a review. So we're actually utilizing that financial plan 
as part of the review process to help us make well-informed decisions. Yeah, and that's what, you know, I like to be part of those conversations when, you know, and when people ask these questions, they really just want guidance, right? So they're just asking your opinion, like the listener question we had, well, what should I do? Um, and really, kind of, I think what we're getting at is you should have a financial plan and stick to it because you've defined your goals, you've defined what you need to do to be successful. Um, and then regarding market timing and predictions, it helps. You can just ignore that. And it's hard to do. I mean, I I read an art, I actually read two articles and I watched an entire YouTube video the other day about this impending market crash because I was interested and wanted to know what they were saying. But I can lean back on, you know, the things you teach me, the things we teach at the firm that your behavior and having a good financial plan is far more important than uh, market timing or getting in and getting in and out and, um, you know, and doing all those kinds of things. It's what the financial plan does. It quantifies why you don't need to do these things, right? Because there's no part in the financial plan that says, hey, if the market goes down 20%, I do X, or if the market goes up 20%, I do X, outside of just standard rebalancing, right? Right. If you think about when we, the portfolios that we manage, there's a rebalancing feature in there that, hey, if the markets run a little too hot, then we rebalance and get back to our asset allocation so we don't take too much risk. But in general, you know, the financial plan helps you make good decisions. That's why we do it. It's not because it's this miracle thing. It just helps you have conviction to stick with what you're doing. You know, I have this discussion with people a lot that come in and a lot of people are come in and they're very, very conservative. Well, I'm conservative. It's not typically because they want to be conservative. It's the fear of the unknown because they're not educated as to why they need to take a level of risk. And the default option, if you don't know why you should have the risk, is no risk. Right. Yeah, it's really just, it's yeah, like you said, it's more of a default option just because they didn't know. Um, so for so let's say a listener wants to start a financial plan. Um, you know, where should they go and how should they get in touch with you? You can go to btwellshow.com. We, we have a button on the website where you can schedule a financial plan. There's a button to schedule a complimentary consultation with us, talk you through a few things on the phone. Um, you can schedule it online. So I want to thank all the listeners today, Elias. I think this was actually a really good show at an opportune time because we are at these all-time market highs in the market. And people are actually looking for this information. They're seeing the information of the, the doom and gloom. And we're not saying there's not going to be a market correction. What we're saying is we don't know when it's going to happen. So it's kind of a fool's game to really try to time it say, well, I think it's coming. Well, we all think it's coming. I just don't know when. Um, right. And, and it lends itself to having a well-crafted financial plan. So uh, we hope everybody enjoyed the show. Till next time, you can get us at btwellshow.com. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. 
Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.